Most people, if you ask most people to introduce themselves, they usually start with their name and yeah. then what they do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. the name stays, what they knew, what they do go goes away. <laughs> then what? Yeah. You're listening to Pardon the Disruption with your host, Tom Young. Hey, hi everybody. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Tom Young. Let's go around the room. Uh, this is Rohan Kapoor. This is TJ Young. And uh, today we have our, our fourth chair here. We have a special guest, Gus Begdish from IPsoft, sitting in for Bart Gallo. So, Gus, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Awesome. Hey, so today we're going to talk about the topic of explainable AI. And explainable AI, to break it down, is trying to create a common understanding of how AI works and the decisions and the goal processes, everything around AI as we deploy it in the mainstream. So a common example is, you know, we've used this before around the Google car. If there's a situation where the Google car, a driverless car using AI to navigate traffic, make left-hand turns and avoid issues, uh, when it com comes across a dilemma, I can go this way or that way, both are bad choices, how does it make that choice, and how do we explain that? How do we explain the decision rationale? So um, let's have a little bit of a conversation about that because we're all, at some level, very familiar with the topic, and sometimes we get too far away. We, we want to step back out and look at the mainstream, where people are at, because this affects the adoption levels. We're going to get into regulatory issues, legal issues, uh, that are going to block the deployment of this technology if we don't help the world around us understand so we can explain how this works. It's it's a key topic among skeptics of AI, of automation more generally. If they're already not believing in the efficacy of the tools and the people uh, you know, uh, building these tools, selling these tools, can't explain what decisions or how the decisions are being made by these robots, by these AI algorithms, why should I invest in this solution? It seems like it there's the understanding is very primitive in a way if I'm talking from their standpoint. I think it's an honest argument to bring that up. And it, the whole term is it's, it's a black box. It's a black box if you can't describe what's happening in the middle of all the calculations that make up the supposed artificial intelligence behind these machines. Yeah, and I think you started, uh, you know, about a decade ago, people, it started in the engineering community actually building the systems and then building the models. And now, as it starts to seemingly get closer towards widespread application among consumers, the question is getting closer. It's almost the last 10 years have been focused on building this stuff. And now it's like, wait a second, but what about autonomous driving? What about the decisions that are actually going to start to affect our lives? So in some ways, I think it's almost a signal that we're kind of, we've crossed the threshold and it's starting to get into the consumer applications. So, so Gus, at IPsoft, you guys have AI all over the place as part of your product and service offerings. So you must deal with this all the time, trying to explain to customers who are rel relatively well-informed, but in general, you've been there several years. How long have you been with IPsoft? Six years. Six years, so you've been there so for some time over the six years. What kind of conversations have you had when you try to explain the technology and AI behind some of the driving forces that IPsoft has? So the driver usually is what do you want to optimize? And in the case of AI, you want, usually you want to optimize uh, the quality of the service, or you want to optimize how you use your people. So the goal is clear, and that's what you're optimizing. If we, if we uh, extrapolate to the example we just uh, did, the thought experiment about the car, it's a lot more complicated in this case because 
In this case, there's an AI developer right. who's writing the software. There's the owner of the car, presumably the owner of the AI, and then there's the operator of the car, which could be different from the owner. And each one of them may have a different goal in mind and, and, and different things to optimize. So the AI developer may be worried about, I just don't want a lawsuit. The owner of the car doesn't want to pay for damage. The operator of the car, the person in the car, wants to protect herself or himself, right? So let's extend the example and say, if she's a mom and she has a baby in the car, forget the AI for now. If she's driving, this way I risk my baby and myself. This way I risk 10 people. Guess what? She'll probably risk the 10 people. Nobody will blame her. It's a reasonable decision from her point of view. But suppose AI is driving. What does AI do? What, what does it optimize? Risk for the owner of the car? Risk for, well, there's 10 people here and two people here. I'll risk the two, not the 10. What does AI, what, what is it we want it to do? That's usually the problem. What do we want AI to do? So this, this, uh, so this, therein lies the issue. I think there's, there's two, well, at least two dimensions to understanding this explainable. What is the goal set that's being programmed into the platforms? Uh, so to me, I couldn't say for sure what is the Google uh, optimization parameters. The, the second thing is, once it has those optimization parameters, how does it actually chug along and get the answer? I think most people are less concerned about the logic about coming up with the answer. They're more interested in the goal alignment to their value system. Was that fair? Do you guys agree with that? I would agree with that, but I'm not sure that's actually what's happening. Most of the conversation I'm hearing is how does it reach that decision? And I think we're kind of jumping the gun because we should do right. exactly what mm -hmm. you're saying. Yeah. De decide on the goal first, then we worry about how to execute or achieve that goal. Yeah, I think the skeptics are almost attacking the developers of the te technology exactly. because they're not defining the values of the human race for what decision you want to make to hit a certain group over another, to save one, uh, to, to kill five, opposite. I mean, And there's differing values per culture as well, but I think it's a discussion that we all need to have. It's not just something that the AI developers in Silicon Valley need to have. It's everybody. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So so that decision should not be left to, to the developers. No. It should, it, it's everybody. Everybody has a stake. And, right. and that's example, I, I like it because it's a, um, it, it shows what's at stake for everybody. Everybody needs to be pulled into this conversation, which means we as a technologist have to explain what's at stake to, the, to everybody because everybody has a stake and we shouldn't be the only one making those decisions. Mm -hmm. So uh, last quarter, uh, South by Southwest conference uh, happened and we had an opportunity to speak to a senior editor from Singularity Hub. Now Singularity Hub is uh, an online portal for Singularity University uh, where they outline lots of different uh, good technical articles about what's happening in the industry. They just recently acquired Futurism, which is a similar website. And we got a chance to speak with Vanessa Bates Ramirez, who's one of their senior editors. And she was at South by Southwest. And this topic was part of the conversation. And we, we got a chance to speak with her on Skype. And uh, we recorded some of that that call so we could get a sense of some of her thoughts but uh we asked her what was being discussed there and and in this first clip that i want to show she talks about the two schools of thought that were being discussed 
at South by Southwest on this topic. So let's go to that clip. Well, you know, in general, I think there's actually two separate schools of thought that are concurrently developing right now on this topic. And you have the one camp where people are saying kind of what I said in my article is that, you know, we we have to make these systems more explainable. We have to build it into them to be able to explain themselves to us. We need to be able to question them. And we can't move forward until we start incorporating that. Like, that's the most important thing. Uh, And then this other school of thought saying, well, yeah, that's kind of important, but we're if we do that and we wait until they're perfectly explainable, then we'll waste a lot of time and we'll waste a lot of, you know, potential gains in efficiencies uh, by waiting for them to be perfect, then we'll never end up adopting them. So that was an interesting take from her on some of the conversations that uh, are happening. And I'm going to call it the mainstream, right? It's it's at some level outside, a little bit outside the, the pure technology world where we're, we're focused on driving things. But this notion of the phrase, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good, has some applicability here. Right, and uh, people are scared of what's new. I mean, we talked about that with her on the, on the phone. Uh, one accident from a Tesla autopilot vehicle or a Google car will make national coverage and it gets repeated over and over and over again, but you don't see statistics every night, if we're continuing the whole car safety analogy, you don't see statistics every night on the total crashes and fatalities on the road of the 11 o'clock news. Mm-hmm. It's just not part of it. It's something that we expect and that we're okay with. Mm-hmm. So there's a different set of, set of standards, and I think that was the point she was trying to make there. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think the other interesting point to consider as well is, um, and she raised it in part of the discussion we have is really thinking about like ha- the expectations that we put on some of the uh, new technologies and AI in particular to be really superhuman and bridging that gap between actually how well are how well are we even able to understand our ethical value set and um, by bringing all the people to the table as you mentioned before. I just, my, my personal opinion is I don't know whether it's an interesting, uh, obviously you need diverse set of perspectives when you're talking about this stuff, but how well can actually people agree on that goal between themselves anyway, right? Like everyone has very different opinions. So even bringing them to the table, that's going to be a very diverse, interesting conversation between the participants. So it's and, and it's not universal. Like like I think TJ you mentioned, it's cultural. Mm-hmm. Yes. The US may say the owner takes precedence. Somewhere else say no, it's ten people versus two people, ten people takes precedent. Doesn't matter who owns it, doesn't matter anything. So who's say who's to say who's right and wrong here? It's it's based on your cultural and ethical values which are not universal. Mm-hmm. And I think we're running out of time because if the side that wins the initial part of this argument the side that wants perfect, explainable AI before we do anything, we have to get it right. Um, I mean, the, the self-driving cars, they're already safer than humans are, statistically. I mean, that can be proven. So at some point, they're going to get better and better and better, and maybe it's not good enough. I think the other side will come out. It'll be a political debate saying, hey, we could have saved all of these lives the past year, past two years, the past three years. Why aren't we acting? Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see, if, if it goes that way first, I think you'll see that debate. And then that will put a kind of an inherent implicit ticking clock saying we, we better define our values and get this right because every year, thousands of deaths on the road. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue affecting all of us and it's not something we can just twiddle our thumbs and record podcasts all day. It's, it's a real issue. 
But to also th- just think of the think of the current political discourse uh, on just about any topic. You could, to get uh, the body politic, if you will, to agree on whether it's daytime or nighttime outside would be hard. Let alone some of these <laughs> yeah. more nuanced topics. Should I optimize the young over the old, the few over the many, the many over the few? Should I allow FICO scores to affect my decisions? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. You can. Republican, Democrat on the road, which way do you go? No, yeah. You can do these things. And so the issue is, should you? And then, again, what goes into the algorithm? So we had a talk we watched a while ago where uh, uh, a, a banking company, I think it was a, a Chinese banking company. Was, venture capital firm. Venture capital firm uh, was, was using lots of information and AI to determine microloans and changing the whole economics of microloans. And it, it used... You know, one of the parameters it used for that was uh, the percentage of charge on your battery. That if you have a low percentage, you're more likely to be negligent and not keep your battery charged, so you're less likely to pay. That's real? Yeah. Yeah. It it was (laughs) at least important, but there was some still (laughs) relevance in in that. My point is, how do we, if we let the machines just come up, that may, in fact, be a determining variable. Your, your point is if you leave it to the black box and that's a variable it could use and it could optimize the decision, but we don't want it to, it'll just do it if we don't make a decision so, beforehand. So, so think of the concept of search engine optimization, SEO. Right. Right. When you know how it works, people game the system. Correct. Uh, yeah. That's So if we know how the AI works, it'll game the system. And then you're going to be into let's start gaming the value system. And the, and the protocols for what am I going to optimize. And at some level, we need to disclose the optimization, but the disclosure of the optimization therein creates an unintended consequence mm-hmm. of creating people who game the system through the equivalent of a search engine optimization. They optimize their driving, or they wear certain clothes when they're a pedestrian to avoid the person being hit. I mean, people with blue clothes don't get hit with people with yellow clothes do. So I don't wear yellow when I'm walking. I mean, well, I'm just making stuff up, but those are the kind of things that people are going to have, have to deal with. Or, or, or uh, you know, Mercedes say, I, I'm optimizing for you, owner, and uh, you as, as a possible buyer say, well, that's the car I want. I don't care about the other people. I care about the safety of my family. Yeah. But I mean, then, who knows? So, but then all of, all of that optimization, especially when you're talking about from a personal front, that implies to me that you are a human getting in the way and actually altering the uh, program to to run in a way that you want it to run versus the true op- the true way that we should be letting this stuff go, which is just let let it crunch the data, let it come out with the optimal solution. So I don't know. It's 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 that getting involved, us getting involved to some extent by trying to understand what's in the black box is actually going to, I think it's going to mess up the Probably. the so, optimization of this. So, so let's talk, so a couple of things. We're, we're using uh, life and death um, yeah. to, 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 hyper, to use as a hyperbole to help flesh this out. But for the most part, AI is being deployed across the spectrum from a simple thing like routing you to, from here to uh, from home to work. You know, if it routes you the wrong way, the consequence is you're late versus if I let it make a decision on driving a car, I could live or die. So this next clip we have with Vanessa, uh, we talk a little bit about the concerns about where does the real concern lie 
And here she talks a little bit about the fact that the real concerns are application specific and have to do with uh, where we're deploying. We'll, we'll give it some leeway in certain areas, but less leeway in others. So let's go to this next clip. We need to find a middle ground between uh, AI being explainable and you know its utility, uh, and where is that middle ground? And I think uh, the answer is probably going to end up being, or kind of already is, uh, the situation that it's being applied to, right? So if it is uh, life or death situations, such as medicine, potentially self-driving cars, um, military uses, then explainability will become more important, and you know we'll put more emphasis on it. But if it's something maybe not as crucial, then I think people will feel more comfortable just going ahead and building the systems uh, without necessarily letting them be 100% explainable. So so in her, in that clip, she really talks about, and I think I agree with this, which is the notion that this, the substance of the matter actually matters to when we're concerned about this and really gets to the notion of, I think, you know, we talk about whether AI is explainable or not. There are some aspects that aren't explainable, but in many cases, you can explain what's going on. Uh, but it may be an issue of you don't want to disclose it. So if you disclose the, you, you may not want to disclose, but we, we may not have a choice. So Gus, your perspective, somebody says AI is explainable or not explainable. How would you say yes or no to that? Um, I think it depends on how we train it. Right. If we train it just to give us the best possible answer, and that is the only output we need from it, that's probably not explainable. But suppose we train it to give us the answer and why, then that is somewhat explainable. I mean, you can you can then ask the same question iteratively, but at some point, you have no answer. People are also not explainable. And the most important decisions we made are usually the least explainable. I mean, I if you give me an engineering problem, I probably can tell you why. But if you ask me, like my son did, why did you select mommy to be your wife or vice versa? It's like, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I give him reasons. She's beautiful, she's smart, she's funny, but a lot of women are beautiful, smart, and funny. I'm not attracted to them. It's not explainable. Some of the most important decisions we make are not explainable, and probably fundamentally AI would be like that as well, because you're not giving AI rules, you're giving AI past data, and God knows what's in that past data. We, we see that a lot with executive decisions because you know, one of the things we're working on right now is a, uh, some work we're doing around a premise that fact-based decisions are superior to ones that are not fact-based or based on gut or intuition. And I think it's probably generally right, but not absolutely right. Meaning that there's probably times when the gut still gets something right. Mm -hmm. I just can't put my finger on it. But I see a lot with executive decisions where if you challenge an executive decision with facts, they'll change the rules about how they interpret those facts to stick back to the original decision. They won't change no matter what. Mm -hmm. And something in their gut is telling them this is the way to go. Now they could be right or wrong and only time will tell in, the, in those situations. But I think we get into the notion of explainable AI versus not, it's not a binary thing. It's We can explain aspects of it. I think when you get into the, the some of the details of artificial neural networks, it becomes very difficult to understand in a, if that then this construct. But I think the thing that I am concerned about is understanding the implicit goal sets for deployed AI 
in production. And I get that, but do we need to be okay with not understanding it? I mean, the whole reason we're using these machines is so they can do things that we cannot. So why should we hold them to the same standards? You know, explain in English what you did. I mean, in some cases you probably could do that, but I think as these machines get more advanced, you advance 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I don't know what they're going to look like. I think they're going to be beyond comprehension to the lay person. Yeah. And by design, because they're doing things that are out of scope for us. Yeah, there's a brilliant um, moment that depicts that exactly in the AlphaGo documentary. I don't know if people have seen it on Netflix, but if they haven't, they absolutely should. And it's a scene where you've got a control room. It's it's a research project for uh, the company DeepMind that Google actually bought. And it's playing uh, Lisa Doll, um, a a champion at Go. And there's a control room of uh, data scientists and software engineers and they're monitoring everything that the deep learning program's doing, all the decisions it's making about which moves to move. And there's a, a moment in the in the film where everyone in the control room is like, what, what is it doing? It's made completely the wrong move because they can see everything. And you know, everyone's just like, oh, it's crazy. The program's going to lose. It ended up winning. And it won because it was thinking five, six, seven steps ahead of humans thought it was the wrong decision. It was an error. But it wasn't, and they could explain. They could see what was happening. It was like an unorthodox, almost like a crazy move it was that insane. a grandmaster would never do. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it was a new strategy altogether that right. the humans have not devised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it 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 stretches the border between is AI simply just reusing the past to make future decisions, or is it actually creating something that did not exist before? Yeah. And that was blurring that question. Is clearly it invented a new Go strategy. Right, and by design, was a, yeah. I don't know if it was design or accident, but it happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I look, whether we realize it or not, this is happening around us. And whether you're comfortable or not is at some level academic because it's going on with, with or without your consent. There will come a point in time though where I, I do think legal and regulatory frameworks will limit the adoption of this technology in the broadest sense uh, for healthcare, uh, for insurance, and other regulated industries until we have a better conversation about the parameters, what we can and cannot understand, and the disclosures required about what is being optimized and how to validate the fact that that disclosure is actually accurate within the code. Only some governments will, though. That's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, so in, in general, one observation I have is that political systems, politics, especially in democracies, are good for existing problems. They're not good for future problems. Even if you see them coming, you just it's really hard to come up with a consensus on how to prevent them. But once they happen, democracies are good at coming up to some sort of consensus. Non-democracies, it's more, it's more complicated. Uh, but that's another thing, is, is the problems that we're describing are not here yet. We see them coming, but nobody's really excited enough to go and, and, and call their representative, you've got to pass this bill. Yeah. That's not happening, because the problems are not here right now. So I've got a question for you guys. So um, w- do you think the topic of ethical and explainable AI in the West is going to diminish or be overlooked 
when they see countries potentially in the east not asking the same questions and seeing the results um of of not the, the positive results of not asking those questions do you think it's just it's going to be a case of well they're not looking at it and they're developing a drug that the humankind has never even seen before or a weapon or a weapon yeah and and that's happening already i mean when president putin for example says whoever wins the ai race will dominate mm-hmm. But you could see the priority right there. Yeah. And the danger is to create a race to the bottom. The bottom here meaning forget security, focus on functionality. Mm. I just want the most functional AI and eh, it's not let's not worry about security now. It might get to a point where oops, we screwed up. Yeah. We really hurt ourselves mm. by prioritizing functionality over security instead of thinking uh 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 uh, or prioritizing both of them at the same time. Mm. Uh, so that's a real danger, especially because some economies, some political systems will prioritize dominance. Yeah. So Sam Harris did a talk on TED around the evolution of AI in our system, and it was more of a conceptual, and I, I highly encourage people to listen to that. We can put the, the TED link in our show notes. But the race to good and effective is an easier race to win than the race to right or correct <laughs> and safe. Mm-hmm. So the safe, uh, controlled deployment is a harder road to travel. Therefore, the other road will get traveled, whether with or without our consent. But I think it, we would do ourselves well at least to introduce in our conversation politically and socially and economically some of these issues to see if there even is a consensus. I think it's, we talk about this as if we could get 50 people or 100 people or a million people in a room together and even agree on it if we had the framework to implement it. And I think you're going to find that we couldn't, even if even if we had the frameworks to do so. But I think we owe it to ourselves uh, collectively and individually to have a point of view on this. Mm-hmm. So let me let me ask you, and I, I'm gonna let me go to this clip, and then I'm gonna ask you guys the same question that I asked Vanessa when we were wrapping up our interview with her on Skype. And the question I asked her is, are are you bullish, bearish? Where you, where do you see all this stuff? And and she describes herself a little bit as a as a skeptic. So let's go to this last clip with her. Um, like I said, I'm a skeptic in general, and also when it comes to tech and. I think that a lot of the unintended negative consequences um, are really important to think about and to be aware of and monitor. So while I'm enthusiastic, uh, I would say I'm definitely definitely wary, even of you know things like like phone use, uh, the amount of time that we all spend on our phones, and how that might be rewiring our brains and our attention spans have changed. And you know we're better at multitasking, but we're worse at just focusing on one thing. And is that good for humanity? I like probably not. Um, and you know, more just even small things like that, that are side effects of, of tech moving into our lives that I think we need to be aware of and, and think about. So that was Vanessa giving us her, her point of view on being, uh, you know, bullish, bearish, optimistic, pessimist. And she described herself as a skeptic, which I think is a healthy point of view because we don't have answers to all these questions. So let me just open this up and ask you guys, 
you know, if I ask you a similar question, like, where are we at? What are your concerns? Are you uh, more concerned, less concerned? Is it something we should do? It's something that's nice to do and need to do. We're uh, bullish, bearish, optimistic, pessimistic. Braun, what do you think? I definitely think that the eth the ethical conversation needs to be had. I just don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think. I don't think explainable AI is is. I don't think people are gonna even get around to it by the time that this stuff really takes Will this off. be the least listened to podcast that we did? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I think it will be listened to because I think the topic's hot right now, but I think that the positive um, advancements that we get from some of this stuff and some of the advances, especially in the East, where they overlook this stuff, is going to negate even uh, the, the point of really talking about how to explain AI or even people can understand it. TJ, what do you think? Uh, to be honest, I think the whole discussion around explainable AI, I think it's a little overblown. I think that AI is continuously advancing in terms of its output and uh, its efficacy. How, you know, I think that that's going to trump that discussion eventually. And I think we're going to be looking at performance-driven adoption of technology, looking at the results. Um, in terms of being bullish, bearish on the technology itself and really looking long-term, I'd be lying if I gave a really definitive <laughs> answer. I mean, I, I, I enjoy watching Sam Harris and all of the pessimistic talks. Um, I don't know. I just, I think that, I think that we are putting too many eggs in that basket. I think that we are making a lot of assumptions saying that, oh, the Terminator's coming. If we're talking about utopia, dystopia, uh, I think that there's a lot of prosperous, at least short-term future before yeah. an end game like that is met. So, you know, Frank Casal and I had that interview about a week and a half ago, and he gave, he gave a, a pretty interesting answer on that that point, was he said the next five to ten years would be great, and then not so much. Yeah. Right. If it's a if it's a runaway train, and that's the question. I think no one really knows. Yeah. I think Sam Harris is one of the better arguments around it, but, again, it's it's all speculative until we get there. What do you think, Gus? Are you pessimistic, optimistic, bullish, bearish? I am guardedly optimistic. <laughs> I share I share TJ's view is that I don't think explainability is the issue because explainability seems to me it's about the how, whereas what we really need to focus on is the what. What do we need? What do we want to happen? Yeah. And we we want to frame the argument uh, that way because that's what's in stake for you. And then we'll worry about how to do it. Um, and I agree with you about the 10 years may be great and then we'll start to see problems. Some simple solutions could be hold the AI developer as liable if something goes wrong because that will force them to be cautious. Otherwise, if all they see is, oh, I, I want to make $100 billion and screw security, that will not work. If, you, if right from the start they know, if I do a mistake, then I'm liable for it, then they worry about security and safety as well as functionality at the same time. How about you? So, yeah. Gus, you well, I, I, I am, um, I think I like Frank's answer. I mean, I, I tend to, it's easy to get drawn into the, um, the sensationalism, the excitement of a dystopian future. But I, I would say I think it's going to be a tale of two cities simultaneously. And, and I believe 
they'll there'll be short-term benefits and then those benefits will concentrate to a few and the the short-term detriments and today it's it's almost like two triangles on top of each other you're going to have a uh, th- right now the benefits are broad for everybody because we're seeing productivity in the economy but we're going to start to see those benefits concentrate to a few all the way up to the owners of these technologies where you see wealth concentration this is the classic 1% becoming the dot 1%. But then I think you're going to see these broad benefits, uh, which are correlated to a small amount of people who are negatively impacted by this today. You could say, well, medallion uh, taxi owners, the people in New York City, had their medallions devalued by more than half with the deployment of advanced technologies like Uber and and where that's going and different things like that. You start to see, you know, Traders on Wall Street lose their jobs. So you see a few people starting to really get displaced. That will grow rapidly in the next 10 years. What happens at the end of that, I don't know. But I would say it's going to be a tale of two cities, and I'd like to see it uh, uh, start to have conversations about what that's going to happen. And the the gem I, I'm walking away from on this discussion that, that Gus brought up is I would not heard this before. And I think it's pretty interesting, which is democracies and really our form of political discourse are good at solving today's problems. They're not good at solving tomorrow's problems or even hypothetical problems. And the problem that I am concerned about that is the problems, once the problems manifest, it's often too late to fix. And it's the nature of machines and digital speeds and exponential growth patterns that the moment it becomes a problem, it's too late to fix. Yeah, to that point, I think I'd say I'm pessimistic around humans' ability to be agile and to do away with or redesign the bureaucracy that runs the Western uh, economies and countries today, really the whole world, because we can't keep up with it. The pace of change is just too fast and it's advancing at an exponential rate. We can't do, we can't manage this world the same way we are now and the economic systems have to change. I mean, if we're just, if we're not talking about Terminator, crazy dystopia, just the short-term threat of automation on the public, we don't have a set plan to deal with automation and loss of jobs at scale. It's great for a business. It's great for the business case. It's great if you're selling this, if you're in this business. But what about the macroeconomic view of the public? I, th- I think if we don't, I'm, I'm optimistic that we will figure it out, but I'm pessimistic around how fast we will do that. I think there's a, there's a period where uh, it'll catch us off guard because we're not quick enough. You just reminded me of something my son brought up when he was applying to, to engineering college. One of his points was, one of the reasons I want to be an engineer because I see the, the gap between how quickly polit- politics can evolve to catch a problem versus that of engineers. So he thinks engineers needs to step up because they see the problems, the future. They think about the future a lot. And they're going to be more critical in, in foreseeing and educating the public about these problems so they don't become unfixable, like, like, like you said, Tom. Yeah. Well, I, you know, f- for those people who know me, I'm, I'm also involved in uh, politics. And um, I would lower your expectations about what to expect <laughs> <laughs> out of that. Just it's a dirty game. I mean, if you're an engineer, you may not want to deal yeah. with that and make some money in the private sector. It's um 
a den of vipers <laughs> and uh we're trying to have an i would characterize this as an honest open discussion and i don't sense an agenda here other than we're all trying to seek to understand a point of view so that we can be more informed that's not the way politics operates and so in that sense i would say i'm i'm pessimistic about the ability of the system not a, i'm not going to i'm not going to point to an individual or a group of individuals but the system to adapt well and p politically i think as this p gets to a tipping point when we look at the technology deployments i think our political system will not survive its current form and you see it today with discussions around concepts like universal basic income, which would have been laughable 20 years ago, is now being discussed as a rational response to the, eliminate, the broad elimination of productive work for people. You, you just simply can't say, well, they'll figure it out or whatever, because you're going to end up with political violence, uh, black swans that will affect the the whole purpose of why the wealthy or why the business class is even deploying these technologies or doing it to some level to make more money and have a profit and be uh, better positioned in their industries. But to what end? If you leave your brethren in society behind in a broad sense. So I don't think our political system survives the technological advancements that we're looking at. I just, but I don't have a point of view on what will emerge. I, I mean, I agree with you. And I'll make it even more complicated by saying, as AI becomes more prevalent, it actually becomes a power player. In the sense, for example, think about an HR department. As you rely more and more on these AI making hiring decisions for you, you may in theory be still responsible for hiring, in practice, you're kind of giving it away little by little to something you control in theory, but in practice, you just do always yeah. what the AI tells you to do. So that's a power that's a power play, and politics is about power. So now all of a sudden, there's a strange, mysterious force we haven't studied before that's part of the politics, because politics is about controlling and managing power. So... I totally agree the current political system will change because there's additional intelligences now getting into the game that we don't know what, what they're going to look like. It's, a, it's an interesting discussion, the HR example. I mean, at what point do we fire the elevator operator? Like, I think the elevator works fine on, on its own. We don't need you <laughs> anywhere. You're just watching this thing. Exactly. But the American dream, if we're talking America as the example, it's about coming here and earning a living and working for a wage. 40-hour work week. That's, it defines our culture. I mean, it, it, we're the, the epitome of capitalism. And if that changes, if we're not going to keep up and create new jobs that are all artistic and, and fast enough to keep up with the level of automation, we have to rethink what society is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, the American dream is no longer, I mean, it's, it's not going to stay like that forever. Yeah. But there's two vectors here, right? So one vector is as you automate more, there'll be less and less jobs. But we're forgetting the other side, the vector in the opposite direction, which is as you automate more, things become cheaper and cheaper. So which one will win and can we keep them in the right balance? That's the question.
that's really the problem we have to. As you get here's solve. the issue, Gus. You have a saturation point on consumption. You can drink one bottle of wine a day. You can eat one steak a day. You can't eat fifty steaks or drink fifty bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. So no matter how cheap, it, if it's free, it's not going to change my consumption parameter, right? So we in a world of abundance, price points are just signals, but they they don't affect the the macro outcome. And um, again, in that sense, I just I don't see our political system being able to to deal with that. Automation, AI, all contribute to a world of abundance, mm-hmm. in theory. Right. It's, it's interesting that that's not the initial conclusion. You'd think if you look at a macro point of view, say, hey, you know, you're a nation. We're going to get rid of 60%, 70% of your work, and everything's going to be cheaper. It sounds like a utopia. But when you talk about these microeconomic conditions, you look at the individual, mm-hmm. he's cast away. He has no income. He can't earn a wage. He's in poverty. So at a macro level, it seems like it's great as a society, but you look at the individual, unless the system changes, it's bad for them. It's bad for the 80%. Especially with new generations coming through, their, their purpose is their job, what they do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You take that away from them, that's wealth. That's their wealth. Actually, I'm more worried about that aspect of it than yeah. the economic. The economic mm. can be solved. There are already ideas, universal basic income, et cetera. But suppose there's a lot of physical abundance. Mm. Most people, if you ask most people to introduce themselves, they usually start with their name and yeah. then what they do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. the name stays, what they, knew, what they do go, goes away, <laughs> then what? Yeah. what? What would humans do? Would they become all drunkards and, yeah. and you know, would they find some other purpose? That, I'm more worried about that piece of it in the long run. In the short run, I am worried about the economics mm. and, and so on. I'm yeah. TJ mm. and I watch Jeopardy reruns. <laughs> what do you... <laughs> so, I would tell you that I've had this I've had this point of view that the end of our 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 political system is is upon us this generation. I can't say when, but this generation. And and at first there's an anxiety level that you go through uh when that's the case, but I would say at the end of the day that point of view has been for me at least highly liberating. In the, in in the sense that I don't worry about the things I don't. I don't want to sound the wrong way, but I don't worry about things like retirement and what the world's going to be like in 2030 or 2040, and will I have enough resources and all the things that people go through when they approach their job and savings and 401ks and things like that. Because I just have view that that table is going to that slate's going to get wiped clean before that ever happens. Now, what comes in its place? I just assume that if you are a positive entity in whatever ecosystem that is. Like you're a contributor, you work hard, you do things, you're nice to people, people around you like you, you have good relationships. You look at, instead of money, you look at things like love and other things like that. Those are the parameters that are gonna be valuable to you moving forward. So I think it's at some level it's liberating. It's way off topic here about what we're talking to, but I think when we start to see this and we see the concerns, one reaction is to raise your hands like, oh, this is gonna be terrible, but I would say, what what's going to emerge here will p- likely be better in the long term. I just think it's going to be turmoil while we change and let go of the old. I agree. So mm-hmm. I, I, that actually makes me feel better because the one line I would close with is it's the coming of these machines that will send us back to thinking about what it means to be human. 
it's back to the most existential problem we have. What does it mean to be human? What is our legacy? Why are we here? These machines will finally enable us to ignore the details about 401k and money and this and focus about why are we human? What are we here to do? Gus, you're giving me an existential was, crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a great way to end this. You know, we talk about explainable AI, and then we really get into the, the, the base philosophies that have uh, plagued man. And I think if we look at it positively like that, then this is a good thing for us. So hopefully this is not the, the end of this conversation, just the beginning. And uh, I want to thank Gus for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks and, a lot, uh, Gus. Thank we look you. forward Glad to doing to some here. more stuff together. All right, thanks, everybody. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to Pardon the Disruption. We'd like you to subscribe to our podcast if you like it. You can find us on most of the platforms where you get your podcast from, whether that be iTunes or YouTube or whatever you're on. Uh, we also want some feedback. Which shows do you want us to cover? What do you like? What do you not like? So that we can do this. We're doing this for you. We're not doing this for anything else. So please subscribe and give us some feedback. Thank you very much.